Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Yes, and a really current example is when you use ChatGPT. If you ask it to write you a story about an engineer and a childcare worker, in 100% of cases, the engineer will be male and the childcare worker will be female, which deepens that gender segregation in the workforce and goes into the corpus, into the data sets for training machines in the future. So it's self-perpetuating. I'm Sarah Wilson, and this is Wild a show where we talk with the biggest minds in the world about the ideas that can help us love and save our one wild and precious life together on this planet. There are many, many ways to challenge and question and worry about the artificial intelligence juggernaut that has been unleashed upon us and without our consent, right? Here in Wild, I've looked at the ethical and utilitarian considerations, how it might be used productively, and I'm not sure if that's the right word, to benefit future generations. This is a conversation playing out with the effective altruism community, but also with transhumanists and so on. And I've interviewed several such experts in this space on this podcast. I've also looked at the issue from the race and class perspective, particularly how these issues feed into large language models via a conversation I had with ChatGPT expert and linguist Emily Bender. Then there's this angle, the impact of organisations like Meta having so much of our information on hand. And I had this conversation with the Facebook whistleblower Francis Hagen, and I'll put these episodes in the show notes for you if you missed them some time back. And then I've also discussed all of this from a very, very unique angle, how the creators of this technology are obsessed with building bunkers that will protect them from their own inventions, which is all very, very Frankensteinian. But Tracy Spicer, the multi-Walkley award-winning journalist and feminist and friend, has tackled this issue through a gender lens. In her latest book, Man Made, How the Bias of the Past is Being Built into the Future, she argues that AI exposes the next frontier of feminism. For many Australians, Tracy is a household name. She's hosted countless TV shows, commercial and otherwise, over three decades. She's also a rare woman in the Australian public eye who has spoken out on sexism and assault that she's experienced in the industry. And she's actually taken legal action on several occasions. She might also have entered your feeds when she took a stand against stereotyped images of women on television and let her newsreader, Blonde Bob, go fully grey. And this is how I know Tracy as an activist who has supported my work in the activist space as well. 
Tracy has won two prestigious Walkley Awards in recognition of her journalism work. She was awarded the New South Wales Premier's Woman of the Year Award. She accepted the Sydney Peace Prize alongside Tarana Burke for her work with the Me Too movement. And she won the National Award for Excellence in Women's Leadership through Women and Leadership Australia. For her 30 years of media and charity work, Tracy's also been awarded the Order of Australia. Now, in this conversation, we talk sex bots, the significance of Siri and her various peers being female, and how Tracy wrote this book with a crippling case of long COVID. The impetus for the book, however, started when her 11-year-old son announced one day, Mum, I want a robot slave. Okay, meet Tracy Spicer. Tracy Spicer, what a joy to finally have you join me here on Wild. It's been a long time coming. I'm delighted, Sarah, because I respect and admire you. I love your podcast and I cannot wait for this gnarly conversation. <laughs> Good on you. That's that's the right attitude. Now, look, I know that you were prompted to write this book. And of course, we've had conversations over you know, cups of tea and, and so on in the past about this book, but you were prompted to write it off the back of your son engaging a bit too directly in an episode of South Park. Can you explain what happened there? Yes, we are appalling parents. We'd allowed him to watch South Park at the tender age of 11. And there he was watching the episode where Cartman was ordering around his Amazon Alexa like it was some kind of colonial master. And as a lifelong feminist and journalist, I had an epiphany that this idea of women and girls being servile from the 1950s was being built into the chatbots populating our homes, because I soon discovered that the chatbots in the business and finance sector are almost all male-voiced because they read as authoritative with the general population. Yeah, right, because it's true, isn't it? The, the domestic chatbots are all women, Alexa, Siri, the whole lot, and I'm worried my phone's going to go off now and try to you know, get me to do something. But yeah, how significant is that, that the, the these chatbots that we're ordering around are in fact women? It's incredibly significant because you and I have worked in the media for a long time. And as we know, the media both reflects and shapes society, so too artificial intelligence. The way the brain is wired was very handy when we were on the savannah. And with our unconscious bias, we could see a saber-toothed tiger, realise it was dangerous and run up a tree or run the hell away. <laughs> In the modern workplace and society, though, these stereotypes, this unconscious bias is not helpful. And the more we're exposed to these gendered and racial and ableist images around us, the more we're likely to adopt that bigotry. So this is deepening already existing stereotypes and longer term will broaden the gap between rich and poor, between the handful of people who have power in Silicon Valley and the rest of us. Yeah, that gives a good overview of what your book is indeed about. But just going back to these, you know, to Siri and to Alexa and so on, has there been any work done to show how, you know, the impact of people ordering around a female voice, you know, as such? Yes, specifically the United Nations did some tremendous research between four and six years ago, so this has been talked about for a long time, about people throwing their Alexa against the wall, calling Siri a bitch and a whore and a dumb blonde, you know, these ridiculous kind of, this ridiculous framing, this Madonna whore thing about the way women have been framed historically. 
and the fact that that can bleed into real life, that it does affect the way people think about women and girls in the real world. Similar research has been done by the responsible robotics people about sex bots because we know there are sex robots where you can press a button to override consent. They are specifically designed to be raped. And there's very good, robust academic research showing that that does increase the risk of women and girls being raped in real life. So it's all about this power imbalance. Mm. It creates habits in the brains of all of us, you know, and I, I, I witness it in my day-to-day living. You know, I'm on dating apps and I see the way that men behave and their, their assumptions are based on what they're watching online. It is really, really direct. Look, the, the premise here is that this unfathomably far-reaching suite of technologies are being built on biases that already exist in our culture. And a big part of the first part of your book looks at biases that are already in our current technologies. Can you share some examples? Because I think a lot of people don't realise that this already exists. We're living it now. Yes, and a really current example is when you use ChatGPT, which most people use these days. If you ask it to write you a story about an engineer and a childcare worker, in 100% of cases, the engineer will be male and the childcare worker will be female, which deepens that gender segregation in the workforce and goes into the corpus, into the data sets for training machines in the future. So it's self-perpetuating. Another example which in which bias is caused in a different way was revealed by a Nigerian tech worker who put his hands under an AI-powered automated soap dispenser at a Marriott hotel. It didn't work for him, but it worked for his white colleague and it worked for a white piece of paper. Now, the reason that happened, it went round the world virally on Twitter under the headline, Racist Soap Dispenser was because we think of big tech as big, and certainly these companies have profit margins larger than the GDPs of most nation states. But the people creating the innovations are a very small group, three to four usually young white men in Silicon Valley. They test out these devices on themselves and their friends who are a homogenized group. They did not even test out this soap dispenser on anyone with black hands. Now, that's annoying when it's a soap dispenser, but consider this. That same technology is embedded in self-driving cars, which will come up to a pedestrian crossing, and if there's a person of colour there, it will not stop. So I guess there's a lot of different ways that the bias is embedded, but it can have catastrophic outcomes. Yeah, and I think there's some everyday examples that you refer to as well that have been around for a while So and, and would be familiar to many of us. Air conditioning in office buildings, right? It's it's geared towards the male, you know, physiology, and so women spend all of their life cold. And there's been studies, from what I understand, that show that women cannot solve problems as well when the temperature is not warm enough. Yes, I lent on a lot of the work of Caroline Criado Perez and her wonderful book Invisible Women for this part of my book, Man Made. She speaks about how the design default in the world is male and it's white. Really, the office was created after that industrial revolution by men for men, let's face it, and that's the air conditioning piece, that particularly if you're a young woman, the air conditioning is set five degrees too cold for your resting metabolic rate. And productivity and cognitive flow cannot be optimal at that rate. So that's a workplace disadvantage. Another example she shares, which was a real eye-opener for me, was the fact that we haven't had crash test dummies in the female form 
until 2021, thanks to a Swedish researcher. But people have been lobbying for this for perhaps 30 years because women are more likely to be injured or killed in car accidents because the cars aren't designed for us. We're more petite generally than men. It's harder for us to see over the dashboard. And according to the car industry, we're, quote, out of position drivers. So it's that woman blaming, it's victim blaming again. And even when the lobbyists said, look, we really need a female crash test dummy, the car manufacturers initially scaled down a male dummy and just made it like a small guy for the crash testing because, you know, our bodies are just like those of small men. (laughs) So there are countless examples of this, you know, mining sites where there aren't toilets for women, where they have to change their pad or their tampon out in the open or behind a shed. You know, there was that astronaut situation where a female astronaut, they were going to send her up in space for the first time, but they couldn't do it because they couldn't find a suit that fit her. And the only mechanism in order to empty one's bladder was attached to a penis. It couldn't attach to any other genitalia. So the whole world is effectively designed for men. And when you add artificial intelligence and machine learning into that, it simply deepens the design bias. Yeah, it replicates, repeats, and at an exponential level as well. I mean, I like the example as well. I remember reading in your book about the snowplow example in the States, I think it was, where you know they were identifying that sort of women and children were dying at a higher rate when it was when there was snow and ice on the road. And, you know, they dug down a couple of layers deeper, so to speak, and found out it had to do with the kinds of roads that they were snowplowing. This is a fascinating story. When they initially did the research, they looked at the day-to-day travelling of people in cars to and from work on the major roads and freeways. And then... When you think about that, that's a male default because we still have more men in the workforce than women. When they dug down into it, they realised that when this was happening, the women were walking and driving the back streets in their caring roles to deliver uh, kids to preschool, to go and visit visit elderly relatives, to walk down the street and give the neighbour a cake or something like that. And they were getting injured and killed more on those back roads, but that wasn't even considered in the initial research about snow ploughing. They flipped it and reduced the overall level of injury and death. So they started, yeah, snow ploughing the back streets because that's where women and children were and saved lives. Precisely. And that's how they saved lives and reduced injury. But something else interesting happened on the back of that. It became part of the culture wars. And right-wing talkback hosts in the US started talking and complaining, even though it wasn't happening in the US, about, quote, woke snowplowing. Even though changing the way they snowplowed in Sweden was actually reducing the amount of injury and saving lives, apparently it was too much for the right-wing talkback warriors and they thought it was a bridge too far, which is ridiculous. It just goes to show we need to flip our thinking. And a lot of talk at the moment is around inserting intentional bias into research and into artificial intelligence to flip the discrimination of the past. I want to get to that in a moment. I do want to pick up on one thing. I can't recall, Tracy, if you cover this in your book, but I remember reading about this and it might have been through Caroline Criado Perez's work. And for anyone interested in following her stuff, she writes about very current 
examples of of this kind of thing on her Substack, and I'll put a link to that in the show notes. But you know, I remember when the Roe versus Wade decision was reversed, and you know, in some U.S. states, they were accessing women's period trackers. So I use one, you know, to, to to let me know, alert me when my next period is coming. And they were able to actually access this technology. So this is another, I guess, example of how technology is being used in a biased way. I mean, it's a, it's an incredibly biased way. Is that something you covered in your book? I can't recall. Yes, I wrote about it in my book, unfortunately, as an own goal. Because initially, when Apple put out their health trackers, there was nothing about periods experienced by roughly half the global population. And so women protested about it, and rightly so. It was put into the technology, and that became wonderful for all of us. But unfortunately, then certain states in the US where abortion was banned started using this period tracker technology in court cases in order to prove that someone had 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 an abortion. So there are huge issues with privacy online, as we all know. Yeah, the horse has bolted. And I think that's why we're having to have discussions that sort of target the whole thing from a different angle. One thing I was just going to bring up with you, Tracy, I was out at dinner the other night here in Paris. I was with a friend's kind of on again, off again boyfriend. It was the, the three of us. And we got into a heated discussion, as is the, the norm here in Paris. They love a heated discussion, which is great. It's a bit of a sport. But we were talking about inequalities, the difference between the situation in Australia versus Europe. And he was saying, oh, look, the gender inequalities are really not apparent anymore for his generation. He was, you know, he's in his early 30s and he's a dentist. And I said, right, so what, there's no pay gap in dentistry here in, in France? And he's like, oh, well, yes, but it's only because the female dentists are just not as good. And I said, mm-hmm. is that because they're not getting enough training? Is it like lack of education? What is it? And he said, oh, no, no, it's because their hands are small. And I was like, okay, and? And he said, oh, well, all the equipment is designed for larger hands and so they just are not as good. He said, it's not sexist. And I'm like, this is exactly what we're talking about. (laughs) It's clearly the fault of the equipment, not the women. Oh, I don't know how you didn't storm out. You have a lot of patience, Sarah. I got up and went to the toilet. I had a bit of a cool down in in the bathroom. Don't worry. It reminds me of the start of the conversations in the firefighting realm when it was 97% men and they were really pushing back against women entering firefighting. They're not big enough. They're not strong enough. And it took, again, a different type of lateral research to show, well, hang on, women are smaller and if there's a fire and there's only a small window that's open and you need to get in to rescue someone, gee, a woman could do that. Or women could be better at talking to certain people who are traumatised after a fire because we're more accustomed to communicating in an empathetic way because of the way we're brought up as girls. So again, it's the external structure that's the problem. It's not the women that are to blame. Mm, Those examples are quite stark. Now, look, let's move on to the AI that is ahead of us, you know, this idea of, you know, robots coming to take our jobs, et cetera, et cetera. What is so often ignored in this is the biases of these AI. And as you say in your book, it's the biases that already exist that are being then embedded into the technology that's going to be around us in the future. Can you just talk us through, I mean, what a percentage of these creators, these inventors, men, is, is, it, is it really structurally geared towards men on that level? And also, 
Is that how the bias is entering? I mean, I think you've given us a bit of an insight already. It's happening at all kinds of levels. But how would the bias be entering these technologies most significantly? I am but a humble journalist, not a technologist. So I've put it in my head into a three-step process. It starts with the data. And for those who aren't familiar with what data really is, it's basically a big rubbish pile full of words and images and videos that's on the, on the internet. Now, inevitably, the data is going to be from the past. It's going to be historical. So the overwhelming majority of doctors are male and most nurses are female, to put it simply. It skews towards urban over rural and regional, towards white, towards so-called able-bodied, towards heterosexual, the whole box and dice, very, very homogenised. So it starts with the data being dirty and not cleaned for bias. That's the first problem. Then the programmer creates the algorithm. One person I interviewed for the book put it beautifully. She said, an algorithm is an opinion expressed in code. It's not a mathematical equation purely. It is the unconscious bias of the programmer. Programmers are overwhelmingly male and when you think about the money that goes into artificial intelligence, a lot of it comes from venture capital. I know in Australia, only 2 to 3% of people who get the venture capital to create an innovation are women. 2 to 3%, it's tiny. Then the bias from those first two steps is deeply embedded through machine learning, which I, I characterise as like a white supremacist going down the rabbit hole of conspiracy theory websites. And there was a classic example of that with Microsoft's Tay, which was supposed to be a millennial-minded teen chatbot on Twitter in 2016, and within 24 hours it became an anti-feminist neo-Nazi because with unsupervised machine learning, the machines just take all this bias and think this is the way it should be, and they go deeper with it, entrenching it. But you know what, Sarah? Every time I think about this three-step process, there's a step that I'm missing, and that's the underlying neo-colonialism because before you even get to the data sets, there are people in sub-Saharan Africa, there are people in Asia, there are people in South America who are paid next to nothing and some of them are paid nothing, it's modern day slavery, who have to clean the data to look at the horrific pornographic and violent images to make it clean enough in order to be in a data set, even a dirty data set, right? So this is the big problem as well. And of course, there's these cultural bias issues that are, are to do with that as well when it comes to the capital sitting in Silicon Valley and the so-called ghost work or peace work that's done by people in developing countries. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. 
Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. Now, in terms of AI and what we've got ahead of us, in future technologies. You've already touched on the facial recognition issue and that does come up from time to time. Emily Bender's colleague, Timnit Gibrut, she revealed this and and got sacked essentially for exposing what was happening at Google with their facial recognition technology. You also just touched briefly on sex bots. Can you talk to us a little bit more about that? Like how the bias has been built in there. What have we got to look forward to, Tracy, when it comes to this kind of technology? <laughs> oh, boy. I often characterise the sex bot conversation, actually, as the modern-day version of the Madonna whore complex. It's like the title of Anne Summers' book, Damned Whores and God's Police. In the field of AI, there's either the expectation that women are going to fix all the problems that men have created and men will keep making the money. So that's the God's police, right? The damned whores are the 99% of sex robots that are built in the female form. They are becoming more realistic. People are falling in love with them. You know, this whole idea of uh, sentience and the singularity and all of that kind of business. But the main problem I see is the way that they can be programmed. There's this one sex robot in the female form called Roxy with three X's, of course. You can program her to be 18-year-old young Yoko who's never been kissed, a wild Wendy, frigid Farah, again, stereotyping women absolutely appallingly, and they are designed to be raped. You can override consent on them. And there are very few laws around the world about these kind of robots. As far as I can see, there are very few sex robots in the male form. I found one, Henry, you can program him to be straight, gay or bisexual. He's got a penis strong enough to lift up a truck. And his maker says, I don't know whether I go to bed with him yet because he's so strong he could rip your head off. And I don't know about you, Sarah, but I don't want to be the first person decapitated by a sex robot. (laughs) (laughs) So this is the dichotomy that's happening in the sex robot area. And there is... A lot of quite serious academic discussion around, well, if someone rapes a robot, is it actually rape because it's a mass of metal and wires? I would argue it is because it's in the female form. Yeah, I think also we're having these discussions around sentience and at what point do we take on the moral implications of these robots that are being built? And so we're going to have to take responsibility for this kind of thing. I mean, that's the really big issue here. I know I've had all kinds of discussions about the ethical ramifications. It's almost like once we actually hand over the responsibility for the ethical outcomes to the creators, then I think we're going to see a shift because no tech builder is going to want to be responsible for a robot raping a woman. So that's when we're going to see a shift in this kind of discussion. But we're such a long way off from that being the case because the conversation, they're allowed to keep it slippery. It's sentient when they want it to be or potentially sentient and then it's not sentient when it suits them. I'm curious just to change tack slightly, Tracy. how much of this development of this technology in the past but also now is not thinking about gender and race and, and the rest and how much is it about not thinking about humanity. You know, if you can see that distinction there. The impression I get is that it's it's just this kind of blind kind of galloping forward 
and we're taking the biases with us. So it's it's not so much conscious at all times, but it's certainly unconscious. But I think the broader discussion that I think concerns us is that people aren't thinking about humanity broadly. Mm. And that's been the way since 1956 and the Dartmouth Conference when the term artificial intelligence was coined. To understand the future, we have to interrogate the past. Ten men, ten white men in America, are credited with creating this constellation of technologies. They most certainly did not. They simply came up with the term. But the problem is from the get-go, they framed the term around business, capitalism, and making as much money as they possibly could. There was no discussion there about humanity and what this could do to benefit society. They were all, to a man, computer scientists. There weren't ethicists. There weren't social scientists. Humanity was not considered. And that has continued through the entire history up until this day. I often wonder how different it would have been if the women who dominated computing in the 1950s had have continued through rather than being pushed out when the money came into the sector in the 1960s. I think it would be a very different industry. But whether they think more about gender or about humanity, I would say that they do think about gender for the simple fact that when you go down the aisles of Target or one of the general stores and you've got a whole aisle of pink toys for girls and a whole aisle of blue toys for boys, marketers do that deliberately because anything that's more stereotypical and gendered sells well because we as humans through our unconscious bias with stereotypes are comfortable with it. So they do think about gender and they deliberately create binary gendered products under this ridiculous old-fashioned idea that's been outdated in anthropology for many decades now. But they do it because it's late-stage capitalism and they want to make more money. That's a really good way of putting it. Dot, dot, dot comes down to capitalism. It's interesting that the point that you raise that, yes, a lot of the computer scientists in the 1950s were in fact women when it wasn't necessarily a really high-paid, prestigious realm, and then they got booted out. The conversation, though, today when it comes to the ethics of all of this, where we're like, hang on, guys, let's have a conversation about the ethics because this, you know, this horse is bolting. They generally tend to be women. And I've covered this in previous podcasts. The whistleblowers in the industry are also women. They're largely underrepresented when it comes to, you know, good jobs in the industry, but overrepresented when it comes to, you know, blowing the whistle on it all. So, Tracy, I know that you look at this in your book. What's the solution? What are we going to do about this? I'm generally a glass half full kind of gal. So I have listed some solutions in my book, many of them global, some of them that we can do in our own homes and workplaces. There are excellent templates out there at the moment. For example, the EU AI Act is wonderful when it comes to safety. It's got a traffic light system. Is this AI high risk, medium risk or low risk? It actually does suggest some quite punitive legislation, which, which I think would be brilliant. Unfortunately, the act's been put out to the member states and they're pushing back because they fear losing their competitive advantage against the US, China, India, and the other countries that are strong in AI. But I think it provides a very good template. Unfortunately, the US being free market, they've got this voluntary code in place, courtesy of Joe Biden. That's just, I'm sure that'll work as well as a voluntary code worked for big tobacco, which is not at all. So we do need regulation. We do need legislation. There's a very good bill that's been passed in New York, actually, that mandates 
If you are a company that uses a hiring algorithm, because we see a lot of ageism, sexism, ableism in hiring algorithms because they use the patterns from the past and they simply throw out CVs of women, then you must have a mandatory bias audit every year because we know that one year you might be okay, but through machine learning, it will add bias to the mix, just add water. There's a bit of a problem in that it only audits for gender and race, not for any other of the intersectional biases, but it's a start. Here in Australia, the former Human Rights Commissioner Ed Santo suggested an AI safety commissioner as a world first, which makes sense. Australia is a small country, but often as an English-speaking country, we're used as, as a testing ground for a lot of technology. We could create a robust regulatory sandbox here where innovations are tested for safety, ethics and bias before they're unleashed on the unsuspecting public around the world. However, and this is where I do get a little bit glass half empty, I just can't see with us coming up to potentially a recession that a lot of businesses are going to be jumping at the idea of regulation when they can save so much money by using artificial intelligence and getting rid of people from the workforce. And that's the cold, hard, bald reality of it. And that's where it's up to us as civil society and as consumers to put our money where our mouths are. You know, don't catch an Uber. The It's a toxic workplace culture and was from the get-go. Catch a different kind of transport, hopefully a company run by a woman instead. Change the voice of your Siri or Alexa at home to a male voice. There are little things we can do to push back. I like that simple one of, of changing Siri's voice to a man. And then I I always put a woman in for when I'm in a car, you know, giving me directions because, you know, I think I think that's kind of important as well. And it's important for children to have that as the background noise, you know, to have the assumptions balanced out in that way. I guess that's also a good example where AI can be used to shift the bias. Like we could actually be proactive with this, right? Are there examples of that happening around the world, Tracy? like where technology has been created to to change the status quo. There are. I'm madly in love with Kieran Snyder, who's the CEO of a company called Textio based in Seattle. Textio creates inclusive language for job applications and goes through and it's run by AI to remove bias from hiring algorithms. Because I think that's one of the biggest examples day to day where your life can be impacted by AI, similarly to banks and the finance sector not giving you a house or a, a credit card or a loan because of historical biases. Kieran speaks about mindful AI, which I think is a step beyond responsible AI. Using inclusive design from the get-go, people who will be impacted by these products have a say in them at the start and not just having a tack on at the end to get rid of the bias and discrimination. It's almost like that idea of safety by design. I also like this other diversity, inclusion and technology advocate from the US who's just moved to Sydney actually, Aubrey Blanche, and she talks about the idea of intentional bias going through and in the case of ChatGPT, making the engineer female and making the childcare worker male on a bigger scale in companies. So I know that positive discrimination is not the flavour of the month in the US at the moment, but I think it works because we have these hidden biases from the past. Why not turn them on their head and flip the gender, flip the race, insert 
people from marginalised communities into this. It reminds me of, I can't remember what book it is by Ursula Le Guin. It's one of her utopian novels where I think it's a planet where just randomly one day, you know, out of seven or something, they switch the genders on the planet. So you might be a man, then all of a sudden you turn into a woman. Oh, yes. I mentioned her in my book. Yes. Yes. It's like, what about that? What if we ran the world and, and, and inserted that technology into the planet? Definitely. I'm so glad you brought that up because she's one of the few science fiction writers who's female. And when you look at a lot of the work of science fiction writers or filmmakers, they're projecting to the future, but often the power structures reflect the past. Yeah, she's she's awesome. I mean, I know I've quoted her a number of times in my various books and the work that I do. She's uh, very renegade. Um, and playful, which is wonderful. You, you did mention this idea of Australia being a place where we can almost test some of these policies, you know. And you know, as you say, Australia has always been that kind of place. I mean, I know that the phone companies often launch new products here because we're such a perfect test market. We've, we're great early adopters of technology, small market, can gauge things, you know, test test it all out. And some of the uh, technologies as well are tested in Australia first before they're launched into the larger markets. I'm wondering if there are, because I know that people would be listening going, well, how can we hold people to account? What more can we do? Are there any MPs, senators in Australia who are wanting to get this stuff off the ground and we could potentially support them, back them, give them voice? Yes, there are. I've done some work with Andrew Lee and Also with the Science and Industry Minister, Ed Husick, who has put out two discussion papers and is currently formulating some regulations that will take place in this country. And Australia is very proactive on this. Remember, we were the first country in the world that had plain packaging for cigarette packets, despite all the pushback. I'm optimistic that some regulation legislation will take place. We do have a left-leaning government in this country. It's more likely to happen under them rather than a coalition right-leaning government. But the most important, I think, mover and shaker in Australia at the moment is the eSafety Commissioner, which is, again, a world-first position. Her name is Julie Inman-Grant, and she's got some legislation in place when it comes to child pornography online, deep fakes. I mean, we know about deep fakes and how it's affecting politics and denigrating democracy, how it's being used in Hollywood and the film sector. But 99% of cases, it's being used for pornography. And any of our heads can be ripped off our bodies online from our Facebook page, from our Instagram profile, put into a pornographic video, and we have very little recourse. Tracy, I would love to, just before we finish off our conversation, I'd love to actually talk about the process of writing. A lot of people here are interested in that. I mean, everybody's always interested in the writing process because I think it goes to the heart of how do you get motivated for anything, right? You wrote this book with a crippling case of long COVID. You know, long COVID means your symptoms have persisted for longer than 12 weeks from when you were first diagnosed. How many days were you sick for in total? And also, how did you go about writing a book when you had such low energy, where you could barely walk? Oh, golly, Sarah, I know that you and a lot of people listening live with chronic conditions, invisible illness, autoimmune disorders. It was quite an eye-opener when I was diagnosed with long COVID in Oh gosh, how long ago? One year and eight months ago. 
I was bedridden or in a wheelchair for about six to eight months. And then I started the slow recovery. And uh, as you know, it's really one day at a time, one hour at a time. It takes a very long time to recover. How did I manage to write a book? It's like that eating an elephant thing, you know, one mouthful at a time. I was three quarters of the way through my book when I became ill. And most days I could only write for half an hour while I was lying down in a darkened room. And that's all I could do for the day. So I don't want people to think that it's some kind of incredible heroic task, working when you are ill. I don't agree with working when you're ill. When you're ill, you need to just stop and rest your body and get that deep recovery that we all need. But I found that working half an hour a day was doable and I managed to finish the book. I had to have a, a two-hour, two-month delay rather, you know, Journalists, we love a deadline. I hated missing one, but I knew I needed that extra two months or it would make me too sick. You see, the problem was the brain injury. I would write a chapter and I'd look back over it the next day and realize I'd written the same word and it would be an, an unusual word 17 times. So my brain was getting stuck on certain words and ideas and I simply couldn't go outside of it. That's why I needed the extra wow. time. Yeah. I mean, in some ways, just, you know, I obviously haven't got as bad as, you know, as that, bedridden and, and a wheelchair for, 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 for that long. But I obviously, you know my story, I have days where I, I just can't access my brain. I tend to just keep going though. I find that the work and engaging in the structure of work and just showing up is a bit of a saviour at the same time as well. Was that the case for you? Yeah, it's a double-edged sword. Every day you're balancing your mental health and your physical health. The days that I worked, my mental health was definitely much better and that's why I kept going forward as well. But when it got too much for the physical health, for example, if I used too much cognitive energy or emotional energy, because you use both when you're writing, and physical energy because you're typing as well, I would find that I would get new symptoms with my long COVID. I would get vertigo or I would get crippling tinnitus or I would get small fibre neuropathy where my foot would feel like it was being electrocuted. It was the strangest, strangest time. And it's lovely to look back on it and think, yes, I got through it, but I don't want people listening to think that you have to forge forward. Do what you can, listen yeah. to your body. Yeah. Tracy, incredible feat given all of that, that you managed to put out this book. It's doing super well in Australia. It's a great conversation to be having. You've brought up some awesome factlets that I had not been aware of. As always, lovely to talk. I can't wait to catch up again for another wine slash glass of water in, in Australia. Can't wait to see you again. And thank you for leading a global conversation on this crucial issue. As I say in this interview a couple of times, I think, the horse has truly bolted. And it's hard to know how we can now insert meaningful, ethical questions regarding our humanity into things when the algorithms are already inverting on themselves and exponentially so. I'm just not sure that we can catch up. Now, Tracy suggests various solutions in her book, including putting more women into pivotal roles in technology. I'm not sure that this is a fix. The entire system, as she herself says in our interview, is built on late capitalist neo-colonial imperatives. The whole premise of AI really is built on this, right down to the idea of it being an enslaved entity that performs duties for us, right? Now, 
I've always thought that pushing moral and legal responsibility onto the tech creators for what their products do or cause is a line of action that could make sense. It could work. You know, you reckon you're creating a sentient being? Okay, well, it's on your head for both what it does and how it feels and responds going forward. I know at the moment with ChatGPT and other large language models, the fine print places responsibility for problematic outcomes from the use of its technology onto the consumer. And I reckon this has to change. As I was talking to Tracy, I did wonder if Ursula Le Guin's idea of, you know, shaking up the genders, you know, on a on a random basis, you never know if you're a male or a female, Wednesday or, or Friday, could somehow be replicated in a realistic way in the world today. You know, if we could somehow create a vested interest for these developers and tech titans such that they would want to get rid of biases because it will benefit them if they do. And I also wonder if there's more that we can do to use the technology for a better moral future. And I know that this is a discussion that's happening in protopian circles. One way to do this is we can start with simple things like, Tracy says, switching Siri to a male voice. We can start to change biases. We can start to change the assumptions that exist in our lives. It all reminds me of a line in Terminator, and I had to go and look it up. I had to go and Google it. It's from Sarah Connor's character. It goes, the unknown future rolls towards us. I face it for the first time with a sense of hope because if a machine, a Terminator, can learn the value of a human life, maybe we can too. Radio, stay alive to all of this kind of thing. Share these kinds of episodes with everyone you know and stay wild. I'll see you next week. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.